This episode is supported by Jace Medical. You may or may not know that in December, drug shortages across the U.S. hit a record high. This is causing severe disruptions in medical treatments, resulting in delays, treatment cancellations, and the unfortunate rationing of vital medications. I know that I have heard in the last few months from multiple mom friends of mine, instances where they have not been able to get medications for themselves or for their children in critical crisis moments. This is so, so scary. I know I've had friends with their kids having seasonal flu cold symptoms, struggling to breathe, and they're at urgent care and unable to get the antibiotics that they need because of these shortages. This is scary stuff. Most notably, one of the short supply antibiotics is amoxicillin, which is commonly used for so many of our children's illnesses. So here's where Jace Medical comes in. They have the Jace case, which is a personalized emergency medication kit that contains five essential antibiotics that are used for the most common and deadly bacterial infections. And you can also customize your case and add additional life-saving medications based on your or your children's family's unique needs, like an EpiPen, for example, something that you would never want to be without, would never want to have to run from pharmacy to pharmacy in pursuit of. So if you want to go get these medications and have your antibiotics on supply so that you always have them when you need them in case of an emergency, in case of a disaster, in case of being a, you know, a victim of this drug shortage, Jace Medical will have you covered. All you need to do is go to jacemedical.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout for a discount on your order. That's promo code SHAMELESS at jacemedical, J-A-S-E medical.com, jacemedical.com, code SHAMELESS. This is the Shameless Mom Academy episode 388 with Farnoosh Tarabi. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, as well as any discount codes from our sponsors, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 388. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community, so be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Farnoosh Tarabi is a shameless mom of two littles, a celebrated financial expert, host of the award-winning podcast So Money, and best-selling author of multiple books, including her latest, When She Makes More. She appears frequently on the NBC Today show and is the resident financial contributor for O, the Oprah magazine. She is also part of the founding team of Stacks House, the first ever pop-up museum dedicated to financial literacy and empowerment. Farnoosh studied finance at Penn State and holds a master's from the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and her two children. I was on Farnoosh's podcast so many a couple months ago, and I have been so excited to have her come join me here. We've actually developed this really fun connection and little like online friendship. I'll just call it what it is. It's an online crush for me, okay? I don't know if she knows this, but it's a full-on online crush. So I have an online crush on Farnoosh Tarabi, for sure. We had just two really great conversations between me being on her episode of So Money and then having her on my show. So now we're BFFs. So if you haven't listened to my episode on So Money, that's linked up in the show notes, and that might be a fun follow-up interview for you to listen to. Today on the Shameless Mom Academy, listen in to hear Farnoosh share her relationship with money, having grown up in an immigrant family that had to build financial security, how to talk to your kids about money in the context of your family values, the importance of teaching your kids delayed gratification with money, when to have your kids open bank accounts, 
why she is owning being the purposeful breadwinner in her marriage after previously claiming it was accidental, the global implications when women make more money, and how she made more money after having kids. This is a fun conversation. Actually, we start this conversation off with some drama. So you're going to want to tune in for this. There was a little drama after I was on Farnoosh's show. And you might enjoy being a fly on the wall for the conversation that ensues post my so money drama conversation. So you're going to learn a lot from this. You're going to get to be on a fly on the wall for some fun kind of back end stuff that happens when two podcasters get caught in a little bit of scandal on social media because this happens from time to time. And you're going to, I know, have some really great takeaways that are going to stretch your current mindset around money and also give you some really great trips, tips for practical application in terms of how you can look at wealth, wealth building, being financially responsible and how you can really embrace making money as a woman and the power that comes with that. So with all that said, I'm so excited, so honored to be introducing you to my friend, my crush, Farnoosh Tarabi. Farnoosh, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited and honored to have you here today. Sarah Dean, this is my dream come true. I mean, you're doing important work and I cannot wait to have more conversations with you about all things parenthood. <laughs> I'm mine too. <laughs> Little bit. Yes. Yes. So I always kick off this conversation asking people to dive into the dynamics of their personal and professional life and what's most exciting right now. And so I'm going to ask you that question. But what's funny is I think that one of the directions you might want to take this is the way we started our conversation in the pre-interview around you and I are like caught up in a controversy right now. So yeah, tell us what's going on, all the exciting things in your life. I mean, you're just so full of drama, Sarah, and I love it. I love it. Everywhere you go, debate ensues. So (laughs) just to give your listeners some background, you know, you were on my podcast, So Money, earlier in August, I believe, and everybody should go check that episode out with the Shameless Mom Academy, Sarah Dean. And we touched a real nerve when we started to talk about stay-at-home parenting and the financial ramifications for that stay-at-home parent. It's not a secret that I am very vocal and adamant about stay-at-home parents working as best they can to secure their own income. I know it's not always realistic or possible, but to always be thinking about that and eventually, you know, doing a side hustle, finding a part time job, or at least thinking about their re entry into the workplace, it's so critical to their financial solvency. And too often, you know, anecdotally and statistically, we hear about when there is a breakup, a divorce, the individual in the relationship that didn't have their own bank account, right, or their own savings was financially obliterated, right? You have to afford a divorce. You have to afford the interim before the settlement and all the things. And, and so there's a lot on the line. And I think, you know, I definitely know that I uh, made some people unhappy with my points of view. You agree, I think with this. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the points that you made, because there's the whole situation around divorce, which of course I think a lot of people think, well, that will just never happen to me. But there's this other component that when you don't have financial autonomy, the level of stuckness (laughs) that can be so depleting and create such a lot, I mean, a loss of financial autonomy, but like a loss of your own personal autonomy as well. And so I think there's that component too, where it's not just like, I should always be preparing for divorce, but I should always be staying in a situation because 
not because I'm trapped in it, but because I want to be in it. Right. Thank you for bringing that up. So right, the divorce aspect is just one scenario. There's all their scenarios where you just want to have your own financial independence because that is a source of pride and fulfillment for you, which then, you know, you bring back into your relationship. It allows you to go out in the world and, you know, take more risks, have more options, good and bad. And so for all these reasons, for years now, I've been talking about why this is so important. And it kind of came about around the time when I published my last book called When She Makes More, which is a book for helping couples where the wife is the breadwinner, which is a growing trend in our country, but it's still something that we don't have a language around. People are uncomfortable with it Mm -hmm. because gender roles, you know, we still are very strict sometimes when it comes to gender roles and expectations in a relationship. We don't necessarily think of women as being breadwinners and that can be a really Mm -hmm. complex thing to navigate if you find yourself in a relationship with that paradigm. But anyway, we had this reviewer who went on iTunes and gave me one star just because of this one comment. And I love it. I love it. I love it. I love the debate. And the debate continues. It's I've now posted on Instagram and people are weighing in and most people are in favor. But then there are some people who are raising critical viewpoints on this and thinking, saying I wasn't very nice, that I wasn't very nice. But I just think I was nice. I think I was very straightforward. This is a serious topic. Yeah, it's so funny because when I was reading the review and the reviewer were talking about you being so judgy and I'm like, I was there for that conversation. I don't remember... But I think because I think when things tie to money, we all have an emotional connection to money. And so if it's a point of insecurity or someone has a history with money that is, you know, maybe tinged in a certain way, that might have come across as judgy to them. That was not my perception of the conversation. So it's interesting that people have different takes on the same thing. Right. I think that whenever you say something that is unpopular, even if you say it with a smile... People are just willing to hear that and it will be interpreted mm-hmm. as you were mean or yeah, you were yeah. just insensitive. Right. So yeah, thanks for starting us out here on your podcast with such right. brouhaha, but here we are. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things that I get with that whenever anyone thinks if I say something controversial that someone might perceive to be judgy, then the comment that I get from people is, oh, look at the shameless mom shaming other people. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, you know, I can have an opinion without shaming someone. Or my other thing is I can hold someone accountable without shaming them. And there's a difference between that. And I think that women often think that when you hold someone accountable or you have a strong opinion, that that's shaming. And that's yeah, not, it's totally different. So interesting conversation for sure. And I actually think that, you know, one of the things that I know for me is very true is that my relationship with money started off in scarcity and with parents who didn't have a lot with parents who divorced when I was very young, with a mom who was very, very financially conscientious. So that's what I was raised in. And so I had worry around money because I watched my mom have worry around money. And because of that, I've always been a saver. And I don't know if hoarder is the right word, maybe a hider more than a hoarder, (laughs) but I hide money. And it was actually a joke in college. My roommates in college 
used to give me a hard time because I had roommates who'd be like, I only have, you know, $2 and 37 cents to last me till I get my next work study check. And I would be like, oh yeah, me too. Cause I would always be running low before I was going to get paid. But then they would say, yeah, but the difference between the two of us, Sarah, is that you also have like a hidden savings account that has $300 in it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, but that doesn't count because I don't ever touch that. So when you talk about having financial autonomy, regardless of whether or not you are making money working for outside the home or making money working at home, I am absolutely of the belief that like you should have a backup plan because I was raised that way. And I was raised with a mom who needed that too. I mean, she was, my dad walked out and there she was with two little kids working full-time kids in childcare. Like, so it's interesting. So I'm curious from your perspective, I know you've built this entire career around money, money, mindset, financial security. And I'm wondering what your relationship was like with money early on Mm -hmm. and how that informed your career. Well, I'm the daughter of immigrants from Iran, and they came here with very, very little and over the years really built up their lives and and were able to provide for me and my brother and all of us in a way that was truly remarkable. And I think growing up with that in that household, it's inevitable you leave with a sense of almost like duty to not F up, you know, (laughs) like I can't screw up with my money because my parents who came here with very little, barely spoke English, probably had to navigate a lot of different kinds of discrimination over the years. Despite all of that, they were able to save, they were able to stay out of credit card debt, they were able to build wealth. And so what's my excuse, right? I'm the offspring of that born into far more resources than they had, far more privileges. And then, of course, the guidance and nurturing of two adult people. So I sort of feel like I don't have permission. I don't give myself permission to really screw up. And of course I do, but I think that I'm always very conscious as a result of trying to make healthy choices with my money. And I think that's also a byproduct of doing the work that I do. You know, it's like, I can't be that, can you imagine if I was broke? Like, and I, (laughs) and I'm like a financial author and giving people financial advice. That is an interesting, I hadn't even thought of that. If you're someone who who teaches this, you're like, well, I guess I have to always stay rich. (laughs) Maybe not so much like quote unquote rich, like balling, but like, I have to at least feel like secure, right. In my financial right, the right. life that I've created for myself and that I have security. Totally. It's funny. Like I'm so conservative with my taxes because I never, ever want like to be in a headline that's like Farnoosh Chirabi didn't pay her tax. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you're actually, you know, I'm not, Oh my gosh. I'm not to yeah. say, not to say that like I have celebrity status, but like when you do work and if you are a financial expert and an author, like there is more scrutiny, you know, as far as like what you're doing with your money. So I have to just be careful of that. But I think oh, going yeah. back to what I said earlier about just being raised with hardworking parents who, by the way, also talked about money a lot in the household. So I credit them for growing up, not ever feeling financially illiterate Mm. or rather even just not having like the language or I didn't have any fear about talking about money. I thought it was really normal. And how did they talk about money? Because my mom talked about money all the time, but it was like totally fear-based. They talked about money in in the context of values a lot. So, you know, as the daughter of immigrants, who didn't necessarily adopt cultural values here, cultural, you know, rituals. Like I wasn't allowed to like go to away camp. I couldn't like go to 
big trips with my friends without adults around. I think that they just didn't invest in certain things for me because not because they, yeah, maybe sometimes money was scarce, but it was always about, this is not what we do. Right. And so that message was really, I think a healthier one than like, oh, we can't afford it or money's tight. And that again may have been the case, but it was also about priorities and values. And so we did spend on different things. And so that was made clear to me from an earlier stage. And I think that helped a lot as an adult trying to navigate my own trade-offs. Yeah, that's a really interesting context to talk about money with kids. I'm like totally thinking of how I'm going to integrate this into our family conversations with a child who is increasingly aware of money. He's almost seven years old. Because I love the idea that when you say no about to spending money on something that you're saying, this is in alignment with our family values. We choose to spend money here and not here. And that's a really valuable conversation and construct to work from. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Yeah, no, I think you can start as early as, you know, three years old, four years old, you know, it just being much more like sort of giving the appearance of like that there's a strategy at play, right? As opposed to you're just reacting to a circumstance like, oh, you know, camp's coming up and well, oh, I can't afford that or I didn't save for that rather than like, you know, well, we have other things that our family wants to afford, 
you know, and we didn't prioritize this, to be honest. But if you want to do this next year, let us know so we can work on it, you know, and then like give them hope that there is perhaps a future (laughs) where this could be Mm -hmm. part of their summer ritual. Yeah. Oh, I'm so going to use this. So as someone with an only child, I feel like I need to give my kid all these opportunities for social reasons. (laughs) I'm like, well, he needs to do all the activities because he needs to like have these social experiences and they all cost money. (laughs) It's ridiculous. And so, yeah, even this fall with like three different activities, I'm like, really? And now I'm paying for Lego Lego club. club. (laughs) Yeah. So, but his expectation was like, oh, but I'm doing Lego club, right? And I didn't even think about, because he didn't get into Lego. Lego club is a competitive event, by the way, at our school. And so he didn't get in last year. So I was like, our framework around that conversation was like, I'll make sure that I get you registered on the day that it goes live and blah, blah, blah. Like no conversation around, so I'm spending money on this. So the next time you ask for Pokemon cards, the answer will be no for two months. Yeah. It's a give and take, right? It's not about having it all. It's about being selective about what you want. And I love talking about kids and money. I think that it's such an opportunity to really bring forth to them important, you know, lessons that I always ask on my podcast, like talk about a lesson you learned about money growing up and everybody's got one. People think that it's so hard to teach financial literacy to kids. And yeah, it's impossible to teach a kid about like compound Mm -hmm. interest at age seven, but you can model really good behavior and have these sort of, you know, go-to responses for the inevitable conversations around, you know, why don't we have a pool or why can't we go to France for spring break or, you know, why don't you work? <laughs> Honest them is really important. Right, right. How old are your kids? So my daughter is two and a half and my son is five and almost five and a half. And what are the conversations that you're having? I think you've just given us some examples of how you're already talking about money, but what are some specific examples that you're using with those two ages? Well, with my daughter, it's really more about having an awareness of money. And, you know, for her, it's more like she's seeing money as something that a tool that comes up when you're transacting, like at the grocery store, but she has a piggy bank. And very early on, I taught her how to say money. And that was really cute. I captured that on video. I was like, my work is done, everybody. She's ready for Harvard. (laughs) My son is definitely um, like he's got the piggy bank and he loves, he knows the importance of appreciating money. Like when he finds money around the house, he knows it's something valuable. He puts it away in the coin jar. We've taken him to one of those coin star machines at the grocery store to redeem the pennies and the quarters. And then, you know, using that to go say, get lunch. And so he's understanding that money is a tool, that money is something that we should save. We also in the grocery store, you know, when we're navigating through the aisles, he'll always like, of course, pick up stuff. And I'll say, no, we already have that at home. So we don't need this like at this time. And, you know, just, it's important to just explain it because as opposed to saying like, no, put that back because he's understanding that like there are needs and wants and there are limits to what you can afford and what you should have at any given time. Right. Like what's the point of having five boxes of gummy bunnies? We have one at home when that finishes, we'll go back and get some more if that's what we want. Kind of being more patient and delaying gratification, that's actually been proven to be one of the most important things to teach your kids for all of life's survival, but especially when it comes to managing your money wisely, that 
not giving your kids what they want right away. And it works for adults too, right? You appreciate what you get when you get have to work for it, when time goes by. You might even realize that you don't want it, right? That the impulse is really what you're trying to curb and self-control, self-restraint, all of those skills are incredible life skills for adults, but you can teach that very early on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, so sometimes in parenting, you get so excited to see the look of joy on your child's face that you cave to things that you maybe shouldn't cave to. And my husband recently pointed this out to me when I made a silly indulgent purchase for my son and it was only $7 and it was on super sale. It was like this stuffed animal thing that was like 80% off. And I surprised him with it when we were camping. I had it like sitting on his pillow and he was super excited. My husband was like, this is ridiculous. You are so spoiling him. And I was thinking about, I was like, he's totally right. <laughs> and, but I thought, and so I was like, why did I do that? Cause he really like in a summer of indulgence, yeah. he did yeah. not need a new stuffed animal on the last day of August. And, but I was like, why did I do that? And I thought, Oh, because, Oh, that's just the best feeling. And so I actually need to check my own delayed gratification to be like, Hey, his birthday's in three weeks. Like I could have given him the $7 stuffy for his birthday and he would have given yeah. me the same smile. I know. Well, you're 100% right about that because most of the time it's not even about what the kid wants. It's like we can't control ourselves half the time. You know, I want to give my kids a childhood that's even better than what I had, right? In some ways. Right. And of course, there's also sometimes the guilt that I harbor because maybe I haven't yes. seen them very much yeah. during a given week because I was working overtime or what have you, or I came back from a trip and I want to bring them something because they missed me, but they don't care. They really don't. I blame my mother for this because (laughs) she's like that. And it's, it all comes from a good place. You know, it's not because we want to spoil our kids run and turn them into jerks. It's really because we just, for us, there's this is for whatever reason, there might be a cultural association, a tradition that you want to keep of like, when my mom comes to visit, she always wants to have something in her hands to give them. Because she says she remembers as a kid when her grandmother would come to their house, all the kids would really like wait in anticipation and excitement for like, what did Nana bring us, you know? And that's not why, that's not really great because you don't want your grandmother or your grandparents to be just valued for the goodies that they bring to the house. But for whatever reason, it is the relationship that she misses (laughs) and wanted to like kind of put it back in play with her own grandkids. And I just let her do it. I've kind of given up on arguing with my mom over the spoiled yeah. treatment because first of all, she lives really far away. She visits only a few times a year. We only get to see her a few times a year. They miss her like crazy. And this is what makes her happy. And it makes them happy too. I don't think she's ruining them, you know, for a few extra toys. And it just saves, you know, the exhaustion of like arguing with her. So I have lost that battle and I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I've waved the white flag. <laughs> totally. And I think there's places where you can do that. And that doesn't take away from the other values that we've already covered in terms of how you and your partner and your kids are managing money in the household and, you know, setting examples in those contexts. I think that that still is like the primary goal and the primary. Right. They see me more, much more often. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. So I want to know when, (laughs) this is a personal question, when do I make my kid go and open a savings account? (laughs) 
<laughs> he keeps telling me, well, and I'll tell you, I'll give you background on this. Every time we drive by a bank, which is, you know, 17 times a day, anytime we're in the car and he's like, we need to go to the bank so that I can get a credit card soon. And I keep telling him he doesn't get a credit card until oh. he's an adult. But he has this idea in his head that he can go up and open up a bank account and get a credit card and just start buying things. So we've actually had some really great conversations around like what a credit card is and those kinds of things. But I think he is at this age where it could be a great next step to go to a bank and open an account. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of great online accounts too for kids where it serves as both maybe like an allowance tracker and also a savings bank behind the scenes, sort of like a back-end savings account. You can Google them. The names escape me, but there's, if you just kind of look up like kids savings account, the big banks have them, like Capital One's got one, you know, but then there are also these other like niche banks that are just for kids and, and kind of do the whole like allowance tracking as well. Um, and so it's a real visual opportunity to like sit down with your kid on the laptop to see maybe what is in the bank. You don't have to get in the car and go there. Although so modern. It, yeah, I, was, I was ready so to walk, modern. take him walking down the street. Let's walk a mile to the bank and open an account. I think there's a lot of value still in doing that. You know, that exercise is something that I know for sure when they get older, they will remember it. I remember when my dad took me to the local credit union when I was probably, I don't know, nine or 10 years yeah. old. I got a, I got me a savings too. bond at some point um, from like the Rotary Club for, I don't know, best hair of the year or something. I don't know like what the award was, but I got something. Oh, I got like some like you know, it was like the don't do drugs campaign. And I drew a poster and I got like a $100 savings bond from the Rotary Club, which is probably now worth like $89, but it depreciated. But my, my dad was like, great, we're going to go and deposit this in the bank. <laughs> and I remember getting a lollipop and sitting in some, you know, big chairs. Uh, you know, I've gone to the bank, like to the physical bank outside of an ATM, like maybe three times in my, you know, in the last year, just to show you that, you know, you just don't need to go. But it is something that is a moment and it can be like a teachable moment. You kind of talk, right, you can talk right. a little bit about like how it works and interest and things like that. Right, right. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit because I think this is all so valuable. And I think that I want to talk about gender roles and money, which we kind of touched on in the beginning. And then I think we can talk when we dive into that, it actually is going to be also really valuable in terms of what we're modeling to our kids. Yeah. <laughs> and again, going back to that piece of financial autonomy and how that looks in our families and how our kids are going to see that within our marriages as well. So you wrote a book a few years ago, which you mentioned, She Makes More, in which you publicly declared that you inadvertently became the breadwinner of your family. And I did some internet research stalking. <laughs> And I saw a post that you wrote a while back after you wrote the book where you say you admit now that you didn't accidentally mm -mm. become the family breadwinner, as you had earlier stated. So why are you the breadwinner of your family and why is that important to you? I love that you did some stalking because this is a great place <laughs> to begin talking about the book. So the book is called When She Makes More. I wrote it and I published it in 2014 basically because I was the breadwinner in my marriage and I felt like I couldn't really talk about it. It was sort of taboo and it bothered me. I'm a financial expert. I talk about money all the time. I'm not shy about talking about money yet. I'm in this sort of weird place. And I thought if I'm uncomfortable and this is my job, right? To talk about money, where does that leave all the other women out there that I absolutely know are secretly making more money than their boyfriends, than their husbands. And 
I decided to research it. And I, of course, found out that there were so many people like me and not a lot of advice on how to navigate it. And when I first was sort of reflecting on my own situation, I think partly because I didn't want to, again, this is like I was trying to, I was still probably dealing with some of the insecurities that I was having around this. And I probably was interpreting the whole thing as like, well, I didn't mean to be the breadwinner, guys. Don't be upset with me. You know, and I think part of it was also I didn't want to like shame my husband, even though he was totally fine with it. It was just me. I had to still reconcile with some of the emotional baggage that this was creating for me. And and it wasn't dishonest. It was just how I was explaining it to myself for whatever reason. And then, then of course the world. And it is how I also heard this from a lot of other women who I interviewed for the book. Like this wasn't the plan. You know, this is just a circumstance of what I do for a living. My career path pays more than my husband's don't like people. I think, cause there was so much concern over, there was a lashing out a little bit like, Oh, who does she think she is making more? And why is she even talking about it? That's so taboo. That's so gauche, you know, like, ew. And we were only talking about it because we felt like we needed to support each other and figure out more yeah. solutions because when she makes more, there's a higher rate for divorce and infidelity and unhappiness in your marriage. And so it was coming from a good place. So then fast forward a couple of years, three years, I'm at a book event talking about the book again, still it's now in paperback to an audience of women. And the moderator asked, what is the one thing that you've learned about yourself since publishing your book? And I was very honest and I said, you know what, if we're being really honest, I think that I was put on the planet to be a breadwinner. I don't think that I could have been happier in any other financial paradigm, in any other financial arrangement in a marriage because this is so true to my core. I didn't, of course, like plan for this. It wasn't like I wrote on my wish list when I was 25, like be a breadwinner, but I worked so hard in my 20s to be financially independent. I grew up in a family where my mom didn't sometimes work and I saw the impact that had on her happiness, on her sense of security, how it created a lot of uproarious fights in my parents' marriage. They almost divorced. So that all fed me. And I think consciously, subconsciously, I sort of went for this. And when I looked for a partner, when I was dating my then boyfriend, now husband, I was really attracted to the fact that he did not place so much sense of self-worth to his income, to his job titles, that he was so much more the sort of guy that like his happiness is completely stemming from his role in the household, his ability to contribute as a father, as a husband. He loves his work and he's passionate about work, but I think I'm more financially ambitious than he is. And that's not a negative. That's just who we are. That's our DNA. That's who we are designed to be. And you can go back into his whole like financial story and history and probably figure that out, figure out why. But here I am. And I think it's not inconsequential, you know, and I'm also really comfortable and happy with it now. I feel like I am myself. Mm hmm more than ever. And I, not to say like, I wouldn't ever wish for my husband to make tons more money and maybe like win the jackpot. Hey, that would be great. But I really appreciate the role that I'm in. I feel very much like it's who, <laughs> it's like I kind of rose to the occasion. It's comfortable being as a breadwinner. I know that's not everybody, but so I'm just very unapologetic and very straightforward now when people ask about our situation. I'm like, you know what? I think I really wanted this and 
I might may have even manifested it. Mm, yeah. It might just be the company that I keep, but I see just so much like dropping the veil around the taboos with women and money. And I've learned a ton. I know you and I know Rachel Rogers in common. I've learned a ton of, from her about this. And she has a strong belief that every woman should desire to be a millionaire. And I think that for so long, generations, not like a few years, but generations, it wasn't like a good look for women to desire oh my gosh. financial it's independence still not. Or, or richness still not. Yeah. or wealth. And I think that, but so when you say it's still not, and I'm like, I think that it maybe, again, it might be the company that I keep or the people I'm surrounding myself with because I'm seeing more and more women talking openly about desiring wealth and building wealth and the power that comes with that. And I'm like, so here for it. You're in different circles than I am. And you have, cause you're, you do a lot of mass media stuff. And so you're seeing like the country as a whole, probably, or society as a whole. And I'm seeing like little pockets of entrepreneurs. Yes. <laughs> so, and you're in Seattle. So I think yeah. that on the coasts, the girl bosses, you know, the boss moms, we get it. You know, we are all mm -hmm. marching to this drum. I think that there's a whole other country in the middle that has more conservative values. I mean, I don't want to get political, but I think sometimes this sort of overlaps a lot of like political views and, you know, why the role of women in a relationship is sometimes dictated by religion. And so it's really complex. I see the whole country. I see that while on the coasts, perhaps there is a more of a progressive view on things, but I think we still have a long way to go. I do love that there's so much more discussion and support mm -hmm. around female financial feminism, really, you know, the, the pursuit of equality for women in all realms and not to mention money finances. So important. It's one of my greatest issues and topics, but right. I think it's right. going to be a long road, but we got to keep with it. We we got to yeah. keep momentum. Yeah. And I would say maybe it's not unlike diet culture where there's just a lot of indoctrination yeah. around these social constructs. And so we grow up seeing things, hearing things, and then believing things without really giving them much consideration because it's just what we've always been exposed to. And so when now in recent years, as I've been exposed to more and more women who are very financially successful and desire to be even more financially successful than they already are, my indoctrination is different now. Like what I see and what I believe and what I choose to su surround myself with is different because I've had this exposure to something that like I now can't unlearn. I can't go back. And so I think there's some of that too, that when we are exposed to something new and different, then we're like, oh wait, I actually had this recently with a client who we were doing a lot of training around leadership and she kept setting goals around weight loss. And I was like, oh. can we stop? And she finally, so one of her goals, like she came to me after not talking for a few weeks and she's like, for the first time in my life, I don't have a goal related to weight loss. And I was like, this is like the biggest one of your life yeah. because there's been this indoctrination that you should always be trying to shrink your body. And so I think that that we get so caught up and held back in different areas of our life because we have these just unconscious thoughts around how things should be. And so if you're someone who thinks that your husband should make more or that you can't have a side savings account because you're not earning your own money, that's an indoctrination thing. Mm -hmm. And there are other ways to look at it. Social conditioning, baby. Yeah. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? 
Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. And it's really primitive. When I was writing the book, I enlisted the help of Dr. Brad Klontz, who is a clinical psychologist, psychiatrist, psychologist. I can never remember what's, I think he's a psychologist, but he's also a financial planner and his work really intersects psychology and money. And we did a study together on looking at women who make more than their spouses and women who make the same or less and kind of seeing where their marital happiness lay and where, you know, how busy they were at home and how kind of stressed out they were. And I mean, all the different hypotheses that we had that just it's a lot harder for women who make more proved true. And what he deduced was that, look, we have a society that is, by a lot of measures, very modernized, progressive. You can kind of look at all sorts of different benchmarks. You know, we elected an African-American president. We almost elected a female president. You know, we have... But we're all walking on this planet still with very much these brains that have been primitively hardwired, right? That's billions and billions of years of social conditioning where the thought has always been that men go out there and they provide the most important resource, which to this day for many families is still money and women support at home. And when that it gets flipped on its head, it's very strange at first and not because there's any sort of like discrimination happening or, but it's bias. It is built in. It's a very, it's a billion year bias, right? So that's really fighting up against. And I think that just the more we talk about it, the more we acknowledge the bias and we acknowledge like that we may harbor some of these antiquated beliefs around what it means to be a woman what it means to be a man, what it means to be a, uh, someone in between, like all of, there's so many questions now about what is even gender. And so we need to be at the forefront of all these conversations and they do impact your marriage, you know? So it's just important to be aware and open 
to this stuff. We're not, we weren't really talking about this five years ago before I kind of, I like to think I broke the ice and there's been a lot more conversations around this. Yeah. Thank God. But we got, a, we got a way to go. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for breaking the ice. Much appreciated. <laughs> and I want to address like what happens on a global level when women make more money. Can you speak to that? Cause I think this is so important. And I think this is something I think there are people who, because of social conditioning, there are women who believe that women wanting to make more money is just like a symptom of greed. And so what happens on a global level when women make more money? (laughs) The world becomes a better place. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And and, and how? It just does. And I I always just have, have this one great piece of data in the back of my pocket that comes from, I believe, the Center of Philanthropy. So the Center for Philanthropy at the University of Indiana, basically that women are more charitable than men across all income levels as a percentage of income. So whether you make $20,000 a year, $2 million a year, if you are a woman, on average, your contributions towards charity percentage-wise are greater than men in that same income bracket. So I look at that as a testament to the generosity and the give back of women that we all know is true, but now here it is in this sort of, you know, this study, this, this huge study that looks at it from the point of view of, of charitable giving. And I think that for me, I did hit a wall in my mid thirties, a financial wall where in my mind, I was like, why do I need to earn more? I'm good. I was ready to sort of just tread water a little bit and not push myself to earn more because I think a part of me did also feel like, well, what are people going to think? You know, are they going to think that I have, my priorities are effed up that I, you know, and I have kids now, don't I want to spend more time with my kids? People also think that making more money means disappearing, you know, from your family. That's not actually what has to happen. You can get smarter about how you make money. So I decided to re-engineer the way that I work so that I work smarter to earn actually more money. And I allowed myself to do that. I gave myself permission to do that because I said, you know what, even if my family is cool with the income that I'm bringing in now, think about all the other people I can support and the things that I can do to contribute to the world when more money is in my hands. Yes. Yes. Have you read, I might've asked you this in our conversation on your show. Have you read Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates? No, I haven't, but I've heard of it. It is so, so good. One of the things she talks about is global implications of women and the economy. And so to your point around when women have more money, we give more to charitable causes. And this isn't just like the local food bank. Like we build schools in other countries so that there are more women educated globally, which is completely changes entire cultures and the structure, the uh economic and government structures of entire countries. And so, yeah, I mean, it's such a big deal. So I love that you caught yourself thinking like, I don't need to make more. And then you're like, oh, wait, hold on. (laughs) There's still global poverty. (laughs) A hundred percent. I just think that it can never hurt if you're mission based, if your mission is to, you know, make the world a better place, whether that's your family's world, your neighbor's world, your world at large, there's so many opportunities to leave a financial legacy too. You know, I want to make sure that I don't want to make so much money that my kids never have to work and all that. That's not why it's more about, again, going back to what I said earlier, right? I want to carry the torch that my parents lit right. when they came here and they built a life for us. I want to be able to then also care, you know, give that torch to my kids and have generational wealth because why else am I working so hard? 
Right, right. So you talk about becoming a mom and doubling your income, which I loved because when I was pregnant, my financial planner and my accountant both were like, well, now that you're going to make less money. And I was like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Hashtag watch me like, yeah, make more money while pregnant. And in the first year that my child was born and I did, I was like, Oh, my most successful year ever. Thank you. And so I'm curious, how did you do that? Cause I think there's absolutely, we have this idea that we always have to add more hours if we want to make more money, which is not necessarily true or that motherhood, like we have to pick, well, I could mm-hmm. have babies or I could make more money. Which one am I going to do? So how is it possible for you to become a mom and double your income? Yeah, I wrote this article for money.com. I thought it was just ironic, but also, you know, I wanted to give myself credit and also teach other parents how to take more ownership of their careers in a time when they feel like they have lost all control (laughs) over anything and everything. You're not sleeping, all the things. And so I want to first state that I did have my kids starting in my mid-30s. And I was at a time, I almost planned it that way because I knew that I needed to be more established in my career so that I could call more shots. I think there are benefits to having kids younger, for sure. You have more energy. I mean, sometimes I really wish that I was a younger mom, but I'm fine with it, especially fine with it because... I felt like I was able to plan my family. I was able to afford the family that I wanted and also, again, be at a place in my career where I had a little bit more seniority. And I've been self-employed. I had been self-employed about five years when I had my first son and then about seven, eight years when I had my daughter and I've been working for myself for about 10 years. And I feel like a few things happened when I became a mom too that allowed me to earn more. One was creating boundaries. 100%, you have to now create boundaries. It's not because you want to be mean. It's just because there are only so many hours in the day. And now you're taking care of another human's life and also work simultaneously. So you cannot do it all. And if you want to have a very full life, it involves a team, right? You got to outsource help part-time, full-time, one hour a week, whatever you can afford. But I really encourage that, like really outsourcing a little bit some of the busy work or the the childcare so that you can tend to yourself, your self-care and your career care. But I would say no to things. Like I will, no, I'm sorry. I cannot speak at your event for free as much as I believe in what you're doing. But I need to provide for my family. I only have so many hours in the day. And if I'm going to say yes to this not paying opportunity, and then another opportunity might come up that is paid, you know, I'm already committed to this. So I've now, you know, lost money. So I got really unapologetic about turning down unpaid opportunities. Not something I would have done easily in my 20s. I'll tell you that much, right? In my 20s, it was all about saying yes, because I knew that it was going to pay off where I would get to a point in my career and in life as a mom where I could afford to say no. I was now affording myself this option and I was really grateful for that. I also started to ask for more money, you know, and it wasn't necessarily because I was a mom now, but because maybe I was just like a lot more straightforward with everything, you know, like you just don't eat around the bush when you have kids. Yeah. Yes. So you don't have the time or the energy. You're like, I don't have the time to be super like gracious and polite all the time. This is what I need. 
Yeah. I also got super productive because I knew what my limits were as opposed to when I didn't have kids, I could sit up all night and like, you know, file a story and watch a Netflix special at the same time. (laughs) In this case, you know, my nights were not mine anymore because I'm feeding and I'm up. So the daytime is really an opportunity to get stuff done. I did hire an assistant for a period of time and she helped to really get me reacclimated to work life. And also she gave me the capacity to like think big as opposed to be in the weeds of the business mm. at a time when I was still in a very fast growth phase of my career. Think about it, a lot of women have their kids around the years when we're about to make peak earnings. Peak earnings is for women is around 39 or maybe 40 years old. And a lot of women, you know, at least in New York City, women don't start to have kids until mid-30s, late-30s. My gynecologist said her average client is 38, patient is 38. And so think about that. Think about having your kid and then maybe not working for a few years and you've missed out on those earnings and then you have to make up for it in your 40s and it's a little bit more difficult because you've been out of the workforce. So finding a way to just kind of keep your foot in the door a little bit even when you, I'm saying like, of course, after your maternity leave, it's so important. And so I said, no, I asked for more money. I became super productive, but I also timed it, I think in a way that I was in a place in my career where I could call more shots and I could afford saying no to things. Yeah, that's all super helpful. And I absolutely agree with all of it in terms of, and I even noticed this summer, I joke about our summer of my motto for the summer was to embrace adventure over chaos because I, it was the first summer I didn't have full-time <laughs> childcare and it was really hard. <laughs> and But it also made me realize, similar to when my son was a newborn, how productive I could be in really short windows of time if I had to be and how I could still like, I could do a launch from my mom's house, like between the hours of 6 and 8 a.m. and then go to the pool all day. And not ideal. I'm not saying it's ideal, but it was totally doable. And I was able to really juggle two different things simultaneously this summer because I was like time management and prioritization all the way. And that it takes some planning, but yeah, it's absolutely possible and doable. So I want to know in what ways you're currently showing up as a shameless mom. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So (laughs) on Instagram recently, I don't know if you guys have been seeing these like bento boxes for kids. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm laughing because I just oh. did an ad for one. So now I'm dying to hear I have what bought you're all say. the bento boxes because I was guilted into, you know, creating these artfully designed lunches for my kid. And it's a crock of crap. And and I so yes. I just have this like very simple box now for his lunch that's got three compartments. <laughs> I have a boy and he literally pack him like three sandwiches, crusts off, because he eats all of it and he comes home starving. So I can't feed him enough. And I can't give him two blueberries and then three pieces of carrots and then four uh you know, straws of hay. Like I don't know what's going into these bento boxes, but they're infiltrating my Instagram feed. I finally decided to <laughs> be a little shameless in my opinions of these bento box creations and started posting them on my social media and people were really appreciating them. And I was like pointing out the kind of like the idiocy of like the packing and again, not to shame moms, but I was being shameless in my pursuit of pointing out some of the ludicrousy of these bento boxes. And I think that sometimes, I mean, I was a victim of it too. I went out and like got all these boxes from bed, bath and beyond and none of them worked for me. So 
All this to say that I think now I'm going to start an Instagram feed that is points out all of the sort of like overparenting, laughable overparenting quirks that we all are guilty of, but let's just like have a good laugh about it and not <laughs> totally. take ourselves so, totally. so seriously. Right. Yes. So I want everyone to go follow you on Instagram because you have such a great mix of things that are absolutely hilarious, like the example you just gave, and then also like high value tips around money and everything that you do professionally. So such a great combination. Where can people follow you on Instagram and find you in all the other places? Thank you so much. You're so generous. So the Instagram feed is at Farnoosh Tarabi. It's my first and last name. And my book is called When She Makes More. And my podcast, which you graced not too long ago, everybody should check out that episode, is called So Money with Farnoosh Tarabi. Remind me how often your show is up. It's You have lots of episodes. It's three a week. Three a week. Okay. Oh, and this is really important for everybody. If you have a financial question that you want me to help you navigate, every Friday I do an Ask Farnoosh segment. And those questions are all crowdsourced. So send me a question on Instagram, direct message me there. Or you can go to my podcast website at somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh and submit your question there. I think I try to answer almost every question, if not on the show or just like, you know, I write back. So definitely use those tools if you have a question for me. I love it. Farnoosh, thank you for being here. I love it that you showed up shamelessly. We dove right into the controversy and we covered a ton today that was just so, so valuable. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I know our listeners got a lot out of this conversation. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you to all for listening. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be Shameless Mom of the Week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly.
Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.